Hello, Buglers, and welcome to issue 4225 of the audio newspaper that has chronicled this troubled world since the very dawn of time, not time, since the very dawn of mid October. 2007. I'm Andy Zaltzman and this is last week's Bugle, delayed to this week due to my tour show commitments and this week's Bugle brought forward earlier in the week due to wanting uh, to counteract the merciless passage of time. And it's worked. I'm three days younger than I was scheduled to be in this episode. Take that time, you uncompromising piece of shit with your remorseless onward march and your frankly outdated inbuilt ageism. Joining me this week from two of the world's ten greatest continents... In Australia, it's Alice Fraser, and in India, Anuvabpal. Hello, both of you. How are you? Hello, Andy. I am well. I just caught a plane. Caught a plane? Does one catch a plane? <laughs> it's like a disease. <laughs> <laughs> well, given COVID times, it seems like that's the way to catch a disease, is catch a plane. Yes. Yes, I just rode on a plane <laughs> to get to Melbourne. <laughs> Uh, Anubab, uh, you are uh, in, uh, well, not in Mumbai, as usual. Tell us uh, tell us where you are and why. Yes, hello. Hello, Alice. Hello, Andy. I am in North India, in the state of Punjab. Uh, I won't go into the specifics of the town I'm in, but uh, uh, there is a big event. A museum is opening um, to commemorate or remember, I guess would be better, uh, one of the many British atrocities that were committed in Punjab. <laughs> and for some reason, they decided post-COVID, it would be a good idea to have a comedian come and give a perspective on this. Uh, now, I have never spoken at an atrocity before. Uh, I, I have never been featured during a historical atrocity. Um, so if you guys have any tips for me, let me know. Um, I suppose more than saying the British are terrible, it was bad, it shouldn't have happened, which I feel I've been saying for a pretty long time now. <laughs> well, Anubab, you know I kill at every gig, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does work well. I just want to finish by saying, look, all the venues have opened in India, and I'm happy to say that this part of the world, comedy is back. And there are a couple of great things about that, which is uh, the National Center for Performing Arts, which is our big Mumbai theater. It opened on Sunday. There was a big gala. And I'm happy to report that Indian audiences have returned to their great, wonderful habits, which is coughing through every joke <laughs> and showing up at least 40 minutes late to a gig, which, uh, Andy, you will remember as nostalgia. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I should just pick you up on a, a slight linguistic error you made, Anivab, describing it as, a, as an atrocity performed by the British in uh, imperial times. I think that the technical term you're looking for is uh, behavioural glitch. Uh, <laughs> that's, how, that's how we like to think of them. An embarrassing kerfuffle. You've just given me the headline of my keynote address tonight. A slight kerfuffle that happened in Punjab, which is also the name of a pretty good musical. <laughs> uh, we are recording on the 29th of March, uh, Friday, when uh, we were originally scheduled to be recording, uh, when, of course, I would have been three days older, is April Fool's Day, the first of April. This year, however, it's been rebranded as April Fuels Day, as the world belatedly <laughs> tries to wean itself off reliance on Russian gas and oil uh, by begging other others of the world's less charming regimes to blast a bit more down the pipes into our desperate beaks. Uh, so we examine the alternative sources of fuel with which we could prank Putin's Russia. And uh, in association with the New Scientist magazine, um, we've uh, developed various uh, false claims 
about fuels that we're hoping Vladimir, when he tunes into the show uh, on April Fool's Day, will be uh, hoodwinked by. According to French scientists, we are now on the point of a significant breakthrough in converting sexual tension into electricity, uh, which could make uh, France the wealthiest nation in the world. Uh, also on the point of tapping the potential energy of mountain goats. There is more potential energy stored in mountain goats due to their altitude than there is in all the oil wells and gas fields in Russia put together. All we need to do is to find a way of converting it into usable domestic electricity without hurling all the goats off the mountains. Uh, and also, uh, cow-arse methane could replace all Russian fuel uh, after a scientist developed a simple pair of catalytic cow underpants uh, which can convert uh, all emissions into low-carbon pellets of eco-fuel. As always, a section of the bugle is going straight in the bin. This week we have a free Oscars audio goodie bag giveaway. Uh, the uh, free bits of audio from the Oscars party, including an awkward cough... <coughs> Uh, as the film industry uh, congratulates itself on everything it's done uh, um, to the background of a brutally suffering world. A reaction to a surprising incident. Ooh. And a gaping void of nothingness. Uh, that section in the bin. Top story this week. Uh, well, Ukraine still not going tremendously well as these things go. A couple of bugles ago, we reported on Joe Biden's off-the-cuff go-get-him coda to his State of the Union speech. Well, now he's melted the auto cue once again at the end of a speech in Poland um, uh, this time by saying, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. Now, obviously, pretty much everyone who is not Vladimir Putin or in Vladimir Putin's inner circle agrees that it would be nice if the Kremlin gremlin took early retirement and did not insist on seeing through the next eight terms in office he currently has scheduled into his diary and all the mayhem they will bring. It would solve things very easily if, for example, Putin were to become conveniently locked in his garden shed or trapped in an alternate dimension by a strange machine or over overcome by visitation from some deity and became a nun or just devoted himself <laughs> to his lifelong dream of recording a um, funk album. But when you are leader of a world power, as Biden is, you can't say it out loud without it getting very, very awkward indeed. There was some hasty backtracking by the White House who tried to explain it away by saying that Biden meant that Putin couldn't stay in power in Ukraine or saying that he actually meant he had no staying power which is a 70-year-old man with alleged massive health problems, might be true, or that he couldn't remain in power, P-A-W-A, the Portland Amateur Wireless Association, or even the Philatelists Against Wimples for Aardvarks, and, uh, or it could have been that uh, Biden meant that uh, uh, Putin could not have the remaining power, a type of flattened rice grain used in Indian cookery. Uh, so <laughs> there's been backtracking, but there's also... And Eddie, it's just Alice. an abbreviation for he cannot remain in control of all of our sources of power. Ah, right, yes. So just a missing... It was like a missing words round. Yeah. The only thing worse than a terrible regime is whatever America thinks ought to replace it. Because, <laughs> you know, what America loves more than anything is a country that has its own problems. <laughs> okay. Interesting reaction from the yeah. younger generation to that. You know, my, my two favourite phrases in the last week from President Biden has been, for God's sake, man, stop. And the second one has been... what. And this is after he landed in Poland. This was in his speech. What's wrong with you, man? <laughs> At this stage, he's looking less like a world leader than like an old man hanging out in his yard in Connecticut, shouting at a teenager who's been shooting their house with BB guns. <laughs> <laughs> sort of feel like 
that's sort of been like how he's tried to address Putin. But I have a quick question for both of you. Often Russia's sort of response to this sort of thing is poisoning people. My question is, do you think poison, just as a war mechanic tool, is making a comeback because of all this? Russians have always liked poison. And do you think poison is having a moment here now? Well, it does seem that way. Um, Roman Abramovich, about whom we've talked uh, recently on this podcast, the uh, owner of Chelsea Football Club, uh, has claimed that he was poisoned at peace talks recently, along with other Ukrainian uh, negotiators. I think Abramovich <laughs> is trying to act as some kind of go-between. And it is, I mean, there's just so much about this that is this whole story, as we've talked about before, that is just so kind of bafflingly 1970s. And... Poisoning people at peace talks is... I mean, it is like a kind of shit plot from a low-budget Cold War thriller. Yeah, you didn't expect all of those 90s Russian villains to be used as inspo. (laughs) (laughs) I think, look, there's oil shortage, right? Uh, Poison is making a comeback. All we'll need are bell-bottom pants, the band ABBA, (laughs) and a couple of hijackings, and we'll be back in the 70s properly. Well, yeah, I mean, I think ABBA could definitely do it definitely do a job i'd I'd like them deployed to the peace talks we might (laughs) lighten the mood a bit kremlin spokesman dmitry peskov described biden's comments as uh alarming (laughs) uh and so they will continue to monitor uh his uh, his statements russia's been quite sensitive about language use mentioned a, a, a few weeks ago how putin had complained about aggressive language being used towards uh, Russia, and uh, you've got to give Putin some some credit for this. And as I said before, we really must try to raise the linguistic bar and criticise his headed genocidal war crimes in a more civilised manner. And Putin's language throughout has been uh, impeccable. He doesn't want to trigger people through language, as we know we can be easily triggered by language. You know, he's he, he's used impeccable language. A special military operation, not unleash the dogs of war and the shit dragons of terror. And uh, he's used peacekeeping rather than unprovoked mega slaughter. So you can see why they do get a little upset by uh, by language such as uh, such as Biden's. In other Ukraine news, God appears to be taking well a number of sides in the war, as is so often the case. Um, uh, Joe Biden, as we said, uh, sent his prayers to the people of Ukraine, which have not proved a hundred percent effective thus far. But the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, has endorsed the Ukraine invasion. Uh, Patriarch Kirill, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, has uh, given the uh, big ecclesiastical thumbs up to Putin's action. Now, I'm a bit out of the loop with God, uh, I will uh, grant you that, uh, and with Christianity and shit like that. But from what I recall from my schooling uh, at a Christian school, albeit as a lapsed Jewish child, Jesus was not a natural advocate of the mass slayings of innocent women and children <laughs> and uh, wasn't a huge fan of uh, untrammeled brutality. He gave off more of a peace is cool vibe. So, I mean, how, how do we interpret the fact that the Russian Orthodox Church is, uh, you know, apparently given uh, God's appro- approval for what's going on? I think it's incredible. The patriarch, Kirill, who's a 75-year-old patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, has, has come down on it's the side. It's quite young of, for a patriarch, I think, that, isn't it? very young for a patriarch, particularly given the patriarchy has been going for hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, <laughs> I assume, like, tens of thousands of years, maybe. Couple hundreds of thousands, of thousands is good. Yeah. 
I don't know. I, don't I know. think there was a pat- there was a patriarchy when it was just single celled organisms <laughs> in the sea. It's just been handed down <laughs> through the generations, Alice. I'm not good at time maths. The point <laughs> is, the patriarch has come down on the side of of Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, citing as an example of what Putin is rescuing the people of Ukraine from as uh, things like gay pride marches, saying that outsiders are trying to force gay pride marches on on the people of Donbas in eastern Ukraine, and I. He, he's sort of presenting this war as, as one that has metaphysical uh, significance. He's he's a woke. He's like an anti woke bro. This is this patriarch <laughs> should have a podcast. <laughs> like if you just want to complain about pride marches, there is a forum for you to do that. You don't need to run a whole church. Yes, and you don't need to uh, invade a country and and uh, destroy many of its cities and um, uh, and inflict you know borderline genocide on its people. So you know what you can't bomb pride. <laughs> <laughs> bomb pride sounds like a nightclub. It sounds like the name of a. <laughs> Just very quickly, though, excellent name, Patriarch Kirill. He's just telling you, I've got a set of values just embedded in my name. You know, I don't know if this is a thing that's handed down in the Russian Orthodox Church, that every head of it is called Patriarch something. But if that is indeed the case, beautiful, because I think we need more of that. Because, you know, if I met a bigot Patel, I would know where he stands. It's in his name. It's embedded. If I met a sexist Singh, I would know, and sexist Singh is probably an established rapper here in Punjab, but if I, if I met a sexist Singh, then I would know what he stands for. I'm sorry, I haven't really been focusing on where the Russian orthodoxy stands on this because every news story I've read about this, Alice Andy, I've just been focused on the outfits. I mean, I've been to the Vatican and those outfits are pretty good. You know, the the Vatican and the Pope, they've got some long flowing stuff going on. But the Russian Orthodox Church, they've got a whole headpiece. It's at another level of brilliance. <laughs> they go in big on hats. I mean, exactly, Alice. Exactly. So I, I as, as a lapsed Hindu, um, I'm just from a distance admiring all the costumes here. And yeah. once you're wearing this sort of stuff, you could say any crazy thing you want. You know what they say, the higher the hat, the closer to God. <laughs> So on the premise that if they if they walk with a sort of a slightly bouncy step, they'll be poking God who's sitting on the sky, poking him gently in the bottom and drawing his attention. I don't know if the science backs that up, though, does it, Alice? Because, I mean, you know, the hats, it would have to be a symbolic poking of the arse, and, and God generally doesn't respond that well to that. I mean, it generally needs, you know, the smoke from the sacrifice of 100 head of oxen to get his <laughs> full attention, I've, uh, I've found. Apparently some of the priests in Russia have been uh, criticising, gravely criticising the words of the patriarch, um, anonymously criticising. Some of them are uh, anonymously criticising, and I think that's really what Jesus would have wanted. Jesus was a big anonymous critic of injustice. <laughs> Another Indian story, uh, Anivab. There's been uh, a lot of stories about Indian people who've been stranded in in Ukraine. Several hundred uh, university students who, uh, at the start of the crisis, struggling struggling to get home. And um, uh, I know you are the, the Bugles' doctors and uh, mm. carnivores correspondent. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so those two roles have have come together rather nicely in this story. Exactly. Look, Alice, Andy, I'm just going to ask you what you think about this. I'm just going to read you the headline, and the headline is Indian doctor stranded in Ukraine with pet jaguar and panther. (laughs) All I'm going to say to you is, I'm going to ask you, which of us 
haven't been. Um, <laughs> so for more than a week in war-torn Ukraine, Gurkumar Patil, who had bought two animals from the Kiev Zoo. Again, back up. I didn't know yeah, that yeah, they were yeah. for sale at the zoo. I thought it was more of a browsing situation and then maybe order one when you get home. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I mean, we're in we're in the land where whatever patriarch Kirill says goes. And maybe he decided <laughs> that there was an edict that says wild animals are for sale. Was this not just him merely filming for the sequel to Life of Pi? Uh, rather, um, Life of Row, I presume. Life of Pi squared. <laughs> Two versions of that joke. <laughs> Buglers, you can choose whichever one you prefer. Um, <laughs> that's going to really split the Greek alphabet fans from the maths fans. <laughs> <laughs> That's a Venn diagram crossover. That's our core demographic, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> this has never happened on the Bugle before. There is an intersection of wild Indian animals, Greek letters, and Ukraine. This is current affairs, Greek mathematics, and Indian man with wild animals. You're absolutely right, Andy. We're done with tigers on boats. This man, Giri Kumar Patil, had a plan. He wanted to get this 20-month-old jaguar and its female panther partner, uh, a six-month-old cub, and he wanted to bring them back to India. Which of us haven't had this desire? And he doesn't want to run away from Ukraine right now. His only concern is he doesn't know where to get 23 kilograms of sheep, turkey, and chicken meat to feed his wild animals. (laughs) One of the things that it mentions in this article is that uh, this doctor is single, which I don't think anybody (laughs) needed to emphasise or even mention. No reasonable potential partner looks at a man with two big killer cats as pets and goes, there's room for me in that. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, he's a doctor. Ooh, he's cowering in a basement with his friends who will definitely eat him if he dies or sleeps too hard or forgets to feed them for even one day, you know? (laughs) Absolutely correct. Imagine that Tinder profile, Alice, you know, (laughs) single Kiev in a basement with two wild animals. (laughs) On the flip side, maybe there is somebody for him, in which case there is hope for everyone on the planet. I mean, there's a lot of men uh, standing next to tigers in their Tinder profiles, but very rarely do they own them, I think. (laughs) And can you really own a tiger? I think if you buy a tiger, the tiger owns you. I think that's... (laughs) legal status of buying a tiger you've just paid to be owned by a tiger (laughs) and like Andy said earlier look people he went as a foreign student and I was a foreign student for a long time and it can get very lonely you're in a cold northern hemisphere country you don't have any friends so what do all Indian students do they go out and buy a wild animal it's just a standard (laughs) practice you know I I tried to make friends and buy a woolen coat he went out there and bought a jaguar and a panther Which of us wouldn't? (laughs) Other massive conflict news now, and the Oscars has degenerated into a free-for-all featuring all 40,000 people involved in uh, Hollywood. I mean, it was just one punch, but the the aftermath has basically involved everyone having an opinion uh, on it. Alice, as our um, showbiz celebrity fisticuffs correspondent, just uh, just remind everyone exactly what happened in the fight of the millennium so far. 
I mean, this week is the week that we found out more detail than we needed to find out about Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith's open marriage, which is that it is open to everything except zingers. When uh, Chris Rock was making some jokes about various Hollywood stars, he made a joke uh, about uh, Jada Pinkett Smith appearing in the next G.I. Jane movie, uh, which was taken to be a reference to her bald head, uh, and she has alopecia, and Will Smith decided that he needed to get up on stage and smack another man in the face. And, like, as a comedian, it is a professional dream to be asked to punch up the Oscars. <laughs> but I don't think they meant being uh, slapped by a man who's clearly struggling with the mental equilibrium of playing manly men who punch out their feelings and also being an actor at the same time, which is the job where they have to hire other men to do their pretend punching for them because their faces are too pretty to risk. <laughs> <laughs> it was a, a kind of strange event. I mean, I have as much interest in the Oscars as I have in the annual Austro-Peruvian Dog Ballet Awards. <laughs> uh, I realise they're interesting to some people. I don't believe the awards have any intrinsic meaning, and I'm constantly baffled by what the attendees wear. So they're, they're kind of similar events to me. Timothy Chalamet didn't wear a shirt, and now nobody's talking about it. <laughs> that is, I mean, that's the greatest tragedy of all in many ways. The things we should be talking about. Yeah. A shirtless man. My dad once did get up on stage to um, address an MC who had insulted me. Really? <laughs> That's why I always bring parents to a gig. You know, <laughs> doing it for the last 20 years. He didn't punch the guy, by the way. He just, he said, I'd like you to apologise to my daughter, please. Which is what Will Smith could have, he could have yeah. taken that approach. My dad he? did it the right way. The guy introduced me, by the way, by saying, this is a girl who's been around the comedy scene for a couple of years, uh, by which I mean she's been f***ing all the dudes. A classy intro. Yeah, and so I went on and did my set and sort of didn't address it because why would you? And then Dad got up on the stage and sort of came in to the guy and said, uh, I'd like you to apologise to my daughter, please. And did he? Yeah, he was like, uh, yeah, who do you think you are? I guess I guess you think you're Alice's dad. Sorry, Alice's dad. <laughs> That's fair enough. Alice, sorry, I'm I'm stuck about three minutes behind. Did you just say that Timothy Chalamet, the big Hollywood actor, showed up without a shirt? Yes, yes, he was showing a deliberately. Strip of, yeah, deliberately on purpose. Oh right, showing a, a lot of pale chest slash stomach. You know, Timothy Chalamet is. You know, he's the one with the sort of the beautiful effeminate mouth in a very chiselled jawline, like a sort of an anime cartoon of sexiness for people who don't understand what sex is. <laughs> Yeah, I've got him now. Yep. Yeah, that's that's modern man. Look, I mean, this, this is why my head is about to explode. You see, I always looked at the West as as sort of setting the bar for sophisticated events. Now, right. if there is a big that's actor naive. showing up, <laughs> that was silly of me. I should have bought more wild animals in my foreign education <laughs> days instead of studying. But here's the thing. You always look at the Oscars for this sort of grand, sophisticated ceremony. If there's a man showing up without a shirt, it's the same as an event attended by Andy Zaltzman when he was in Calcutta, when we went to watch a football match uh, where a bunch of relatively illiterate young boy hooligan people showed up and they sat next to us and immediately took off their shirts. <laughs> and at least they had the decency to turn to us and say, is this all right? And we said, it's all right. <laughs> How is that more gracious now than the Oscars? I'm, I'm, what is going on? In terms of the the rights and wrongs of the incident, I don't think there should be any limits on what a comedian should be able to say. I'm not saying you can't say certain things because they're beyond the pale or beyond the perceived pale, but I am saying, as a comedian, particularly one of Chris Rock's standing, you should be good enough not to have to say them 
And I'm also not saying a person should not spring to the defence of a wronged or insulted loved one, a family member, or indeed just any random member of the human race. But the red mist face slap, generally not the best way of doing it, especially when you, as one of the most pro- prominent celebrities in the world, have an instant audience of millions whenever you open your mouth. So as you say, you could have just you know said something. I think it would have been more effective, a lot more dignified, and um, all in all, two wrongs made two wrongs, and... <laughs> Uh, took our attention away from the more important issue of the awards themselves, uh, including the, the major awards at this year's Oscars, least necessary superhero film, <laughs> least thought-provoking reworking of a tied concept, uh, most unbelievable on-screen romance, uh, most gratuitous violence, and least accurate firing in a gun battle. So it's just a shame that the people who you know, won those uh, awards didn't get their moment in the sun. Scenes like this always uh, remind me of the fact that I was once told that men were more rational than women. <laughs> I just feel like no one gets slapped in the face and goes, mm, actually, good point. <laughs> well, yes, Alice, I mean, looking at global news at the moment, uh, that, that claim is not, not doing, not ageing well, is it? Really, and indeed the entire history of humanity. Also, these categories that Andy's laid out, they are far more interesting than the actual categories. I'm going to take them on a piece of paper, go to the head of the Academy of Motion Pictures and Sciences, and if these are the, not the categories next year, I'm punching him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> I've decided I'm doing the gala tomorrow at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, the opening night gala, and I've decided that I'm going to introduce myself by smacking the MC in the face. <laughs> Who's the MC? I have no idea. I'll say, get my name out of your mouth, smack. (laughs) Ships news now and, well, some very exciting news for fans of ships that sank in 1915. Ernest Shackleton's endurance ship, which he crashed into Antarctica at low speed 107 years ago, has been found underwater, kind of three miles down in the frozen wastes of the Antarctic Ocean. Uh, the boat lost its battle with shitloads of pack ice a few months after uh, Eshak had uh, rammed it into the continent. He did manage to get all his crew to safety in one of the more incredible escape jobs in history, pursued by gangs of vengeful penguins uh, whom he had mercilessly lampooned for their funny way of walking, their stupid flappy wings and waddly feet and their militant pescatarianism. But now, over 100 years later... It's been discovered after a long and extremely complicated expedition. They found this amazingly preserved wreck of this this ship from from the early 20th century. And the most disappointing thing about it is that they're going to do f*** all with it. They're not going to raise it. They're not going to nick everything from it. Where is the fun in that? I mean, it's sort of, yeah, it really takes out that kind of uh, joy of discovery where you used to just plunder the shit out of everything. (laughs) There wasn't this kind of passivity when you discovered Priam's tomb or anything. They went right in, like, elbows out, nicked everything, stuck it in a museum. Yeah. Long gone are those days. I blame the woke, Alice. You know, museums <laughs> in 200 years' time are just going to be little bits of paper saying sorry. Just a bit of, bit of geocaching, just showing you the <laughs> longitude and latitude of where the thing is that they didn't steal. So... The main marine archaeologist who found this, his name is Menson Bound, excellent name, and he said that the ship has been found upright, it's proud, intact, and in a brilliant state of preservation, which was also the review of my very first comedy show when (laughs) describing me. Now, I, I have a question for both of you. Now, Andy, let us say 
if in a hundred years people find your first notebook of manuscripts, yep. you know, handwritten, much like William Shakespeare or T.S. Eliot. I'm very much on a level in the, in the canon of, uh, of, of English language literature. Yeah, I think that's That's, that's yeah. how I think of it. Yeah, yeah. you know, you've you're scratched out stuff, you've written notes, you've written stuff like complete bollocks, who's ever going to do this joke, etc. All of that. And your hardbound notebook is found at the bottom of the Weddell Sea in the South Atlantic. We won't go into how it got there. That's, that's <laughs> where it's found. Kick is the gig. <laughs> hundred years later, they find it at the... What would you like the explorers to do? Do you want them to lift it up and read your jokes? Or do you want to, <laughs> them to leave it intact? Your first three or four Edinburgh's from the bottom of the Weddell Sea. Well, I mean, if it was my first comedy notebook, I'd definitely want them to, uh, well, not just leave it where it was, but feed it to a shark. Uh, <laughs> there was some... Uh, some uh, not optimal material in there i seem from the, one of the first routines i ever did was about being given a scotsman as a christmas present and, um, i can't even remember what the where it went as a routine but i do remember it, well where it went was total silence when i first did it in a gig in scotland i mean did he um, survive but, uh, or was he killed boom also it is suggesting that 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 ernest shackleton's <laughs> Voyage was like it was like an open mic act. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, in that they went in with a plan and then quickly got diverted. Yes. Yeah. And, and they ran away from the gig, which would be any. <laughs> they were found alive somewhat and in a different yep. island, which is true for my first open mic gigs. I don't know about you guys. Also, I feel like this story is um, probably a misdirect in that uh, it's it's bigging up the discovery of this ship when, in fact, what they should be is embarrassed that it took them 107 years to find a ship that they knew where it went down. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess so. That's like saying, I, I found that chip I dropped. <laughs> Listen, I have, I have a confession to make. You both yep. know I'm a bit of a history buff, um, and my father was a sailor his whole life. So I've spent quite a lot of time around ships and history. And like a gigantic loser that I am, I had been following a blog tracking this, this vessel every day. <laughs> so the ship that tracked her is called Endurance 22, and it went to look for Shackleton's ship. And I just want to give a shout out on this podcast to the captain of the ship, a South African captain. His name is Knowledge Bengu. Uh, and Captain Knowledge Bengu is the one who cut through the ice and on the whatever, 14, 15, they found it. And only because I think Knowledge Bengu is the greatest name anyone can give to their child who's <laughs> going to be the captain of a ship that sails into the South Atlantic. I mean, I feel if you if you name your child Knowledge Bengu, they have no choice but to become the captain of a ship that sails into the North Atlantic. <laughs> exactly, exactly. In other uh, shipping news, uh, P&O Ferries uh, on the 17th of March uh, announced that it would be replacing staff immediately. P&O is a, well, a, a British ferry company that goes back to the uh, early 19th century. We'll touch more on this uh, shortly. Announced it would be replacing staff immediately with agency workers paid less than the minimum wage as a cost-saving measure. And they did so. Any guesses how they did this, corporate c*** fans? Yes, they did this by video message. But not just any video message. They did it by a pre-recorded video message that was then... <laughs> Played out. Many people saw this video message on the boats they were working on at the time. Now, I can understand P&O having got the very, very mistaken impression that ignoring laws and behaving shittily towards the lower paid has become officially installed as a core British value. <laughs> but even in the heavily laden annals of executive shittery, this was an impressively bastardish manner 
of sacking people. It's hard to see how P&O could have sacked their workers more disrespectfully uh, other than with a torpedo or maybe a torpedo designed and painted to look like an extended middle finger, maybe even a bird-flipping torpedo accompanied by the ship's horn honking, wah, wah, wah. Uh, maybe even a bird-flipping ship horn honking accompanied by a lifeboat already full with a choir singing you're sacked and you know you are and a fly past of an aeroplane with a banner streaming out the back saying if you're not happy about being sacked why don't you swim to Dubai and taken up with the bosses and maybe an airdrop of career <laughs> advice leaflet saying have you thought of becoming a fish but other than doing that I can't see how they could have done it more insensitively no and I mean I mean they've done it so insensitively that the Tory government has expressed its disapproval which <laughs> wow oh wow that's got to sting <laughs> That's got to sting. Look, I just found out that they have replaced all those ferry workers uh, with uh, or the Dubai owners have with possibly cheap part time Indian labor. And as a result of this, I've been highly motivated and I have an announcement to make, Alice. And right. uh, I will be replacing myself on the bugle with a cheaper Indian version <laughs> of myself and pocketing the difference. Um, <laughs> And it's, this is going to set a precedence for all podcasts in the future, I think. Uh, and, and obviously, I'm going to announce it right now. And <laughs> in the next 10 seconds, my replacement is going to show up, who just looks like me and, uh, well, has the same voice. <laughs> <laughs> Boris Johnson uh, said that the, uh, the mass sackings by P&O broke the law. Uh, he did that without giggling to himself, which is quite impressive. Um, and also, in October last year, the government voted against a bill that would have outlawed uh, what they call fire and rehire, where companies you know, fire their staff and then rehire either the same staff or different staff on lower uh, wages. So I guess this is another example of the government's core principle of discovering its principles when public and media opinion tells it to find some principles. Uh, at last. P&O is an old British company dating back to the early 19th century. It was originally known as the Peninsula and Oriental Steam Navigation Company. Also a former drug dealer uh, trafficked <laughs> over 600 crates of opium in its 19th century narco heyday, uh, as we tended to do in those days. Um, in 2006 it was flogged off, as all great British things eventually are, a dance as old as what P&O stands for, piles and opium. <laughs> Uh, it was sold to a, a corp foreign corporate behemoth, DP World. Now, here's a little quiz for you, Buglers. What does the DP in DP World stand for? I hope it's not what family it's... Show. Uh, yeah. Family show, Alice. <laughs> uh, is it A, uh, Deep Purple? The uh, English rockers used the proceeds from their mid-70s album Stormbringer to fulfil their lifelong dream of running a shipping company. Does it stand for Dill Pickle World, which is a top-selling magazine devoted to the pickled cucumber? It sells 120 million copies a week worldwide and featuring features columns such as 1,001 uses for a cornichon, when pickles attack, and Inner Pickle, an advice column about how to deal with all your pickle-related problems. <laughs> also features a cartoon strip, Gertrude the Gherkin, which is, on any possible reading, unnecessarily erotic. Uh, does DP World stand for Derek Pringle World, the theme park based on the life and career of former England cricketer Derek Pringle? Uh, does DP World stand for the International Association for Misleading Acronyms and Excessive Abbreviation? Or does it stand for Dubai Ports? Well, yes, it is indeed uh, Dubai Ports. And as you mentioned, that the ownership of P&O uh, lies in Dubai. Um, the firm is ultimately owned by the Dubai government and they have brought all the behavioural morality and workplace relations sensitivity that you would expect 
uh, to this uh, to this issue. Also, they benefited from the UK government's furlough scheme. They're set to benefit from the post-Brexit free port scheme. They paid out large dividends to their shareholders last year, but they still felt the need to publicly shit on 800 not particularly highly paid workers by sacking them in the most impersonal uh, manner possible, aren't the free market's fun. I mean, for all the things you're going to skimp on, don't skimp on the workers in a building that can burn down and then sink, I feel. it's <laughs> good advice. Good advice, Anna. I mean, there's some things I, I just has a matter of principle, some, some things you should not go bargain on. You are sex toys, sushi, and seafaring workers. <laughs> the three yeah. S's. The three S's. Uh, <laughs> there's just too much risk. It's too much risk. You know who's not coming along at this discounted price is Captain Knowledge Bengu. He's not coming <laughs> along at this discounted price. And also, here's a question for both of you. In what time do we find out, because it's just a matter of time, that we're all owned by Dubai? <laughs> it's just, we're all in some way, each of us are owned by Dubai. It's just a matter of when we find that out, really. I have a friend who was an architect in Dubai, and he said that they would throw up these enormous buildings sort of almost overnight with enormous numbers of workers who were obviously very badly paid. And there is a building in Dubai in which the car park faces the water and the front of the building faces the road because they put it up the wrong way round. <laughs> <laughs> That's half price labor. That's what you get. Health news now, and some things are good for you and some things aren't. And what those things are and aren't changes depending on science. Um, <laughs> Alice, well, it turns out that um, alcohol... Uh, is not good for you, but coffee is. Uh, possible compromise of an Irish coffee, just keeping you on the level. Uh, <laughs> what, what's the latest from the world of uh, the world of science? So a massive study out of the Massachusetts General Hospital has uh, refuted the hitherto um, self-justifying <laughs> claim that a little bit of alcohol is actually quite good for your heart. And people say that while they drink quite a lot of alcohol. But in the same week, while people are disappointed at this news, um, in the same week we found out from the American College of Cardiology that two or three cups of coffee a day is possibly good for your heart. So, you know, you can stop drinking one thing and start drinking the other is basically right. the news. But then, of course, this kind of news always casts into doubt all of the previous news about what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Remember when it happened with eggs? In the 90s, it was all eggs. Yep. Eggs will kill you. Got to eat eight eggs a day. Mm. No more than a half an egg every three weeks. You know, it's very, it's very stressful, this kind, of, this kind of information. I don't think we need to know this kind of health and science news. And I, I say this yep. as somebody who now has a very small baby and is doing all of the research about, you know, <laughs> babies can drown in five seconds in less than three millimetres of water. You know, just this. All right. uh, I thought you meant whether or not it's healthy to eat babies. Which is, you know, <laughs> whether it's healthy to have babies, whether it's healthy to eat right. babies. You know, whether you can, you know, or if, you, if you leave it on its own, it'll turn onto its face and suffocate on its own breath. <laughs> Like, you know, just very stressful. I just don't want to know anything. I just want things to happen to me. And red meat often got a lot of, uh, you know, things like, you know, eating a sausage is like running naked into a lion enclosure, that kind of, uh, <laughs> kind of report that doesn't really help anyone. Uh, Anivab, how, how, uh, how do you interpret this? Because it seems to me that mm. essentially mm. These, these reports are mm. uh, telling us that if we want to live forever... We've got to drink less booze, but more coffee. But the exact opposite message 
is being given to us by the current trends in global news and current affairs, which are telling us <laughs> to sleep as much as possible and try to blot out all reality. So, I mean, how, as consumers, can we interpret this? You know, here's several things. Um, I've always liked studying econometrics because econometrics allows you to hedge different things. And it says the world is always working at opposites. So always hedge one against the other. So sometimes they say drink coffee, don't drink alcohol. Other times they say drink alcohol, don't drink coffee. I am living entirely on a diet of alcohol and coffee uh, <laughs> because eventually if it's one or the other, I'll win. Of course, I'll also be dead in a week, but I haven't hedged for that uh, because I didn't do well, very well in my econometrics class. Um, so I'm just going with coffee. My big issue with this, Andy Alice, is they always give you a comparison. They always say drinking four glasses of single malt whiskey is like running into a horde of wild elephants who are on a rampage and then being bitten by a cheetah. Now, how would I know those other things? You know, I, I mean, those other things I cannot experience. I can only experience this. So when they give us these comparisons, they're quite useless. You know, they often say eating a large steak is the equivalent of stabbing yourself in the heart. Now, I've never done that. <laughs> I've never stabbed myself in the heart. I've eaten a steak and it's felt pretty good. If that's what stabbing myself in the heart means, I'll stab myself in the heart. I mean, so maybe I... that's what that Indian doctor in Ukraine is doing. Um, <laughs> he's just experimenting on what it is like to drink three glasses of alcohol a day by living with a cheetah and a panther. Yes, or that it's dangerous to eat red meats if you're sharing a plate with a cheetah and a panther. Um, they tend to be a bit aggressive in those circumstances. The uh, other reports that have come out um, uh, recently uh, on food safety uh, have shown that hot dogs can make you bark, mm. uh, especially if eaten with a violently hot mustard. Uh, drinking 400 <laughs> pints of beer in a decade is okay, provided that you don't mishear the word decade as weekend. The latest meat scare is that eating a single joint of beef can prove fatal if you try to eat it by catching it in your mouth after it's been thrown out of an aeroplane at 10,000 feet. Excessive consumption of cantaloupe melons can lead to feelings of social anxiety if you uh, perform that excessive consumption in a supermarket, a funeral parlour or the auditorium at a professional snooker tournament. And cashew nuts can cause joint pain if you glue them to a shipping container and then try to break them with your kneecaps. <laughs> so do, by all means, eat, but please eat safe. Uh, well, that brings us to the end of this week's Bugle. Thank you very much uh, for listening. I am going to be on holiday for the next uh, couple of weeks. We'll be back in sort of mid-April time. We will have sub-Bugles to entertain you in the meantime, thanks to everyone who came to all these Satirists for Hire shows on my tour. Um, I certainly was, you know, I think rusty, but it was mostly uh, mostly funny. I hope you did enjoy it. There is a London run in May at the Soho Theatre. Eight uh, dates from, I think, the 9th of May. Details on the internet. Do come along and do send in your satirical requests in advance. I cannot stress this strongly enough. It uh, definitely <laughs> helps the show satirise this at satiristforhire.com Alice, you are about to start your Melbourne Festival run. Yes, this week I packed up my flat and I've put everything into suitcases except for my baby who sits on top of the suitcase <laughs> and um, I'm on the road now. I'll be in Melbourne and then Sydney and then Perth and then Tokyo but not doing shows unless you're in Tokyo and want me to do a show for you and then I can ride off that flight on tax and then London for two <laughs> months and then Edinburgh so if you're in any of those places but particularly Melbourne I have sold five tickets for my opening night which is on Thursday so ooh, 
buy tickets, please. <laughs> and then come and see me do comedy. I'm very good. <laughs> and about any uh, anything to plug? Uh, yeah, um, I uh, hopefully will be in the UK for about a month or so, starting uh, the middle of April. Um, an Amazon thing I recorded in December comes out at the end of April. Um, after which I will probably have to never return to India <laughs> if Prime Minister Modi gets a hold of the recording. But yeah, I will be doing some shows. You can find out on Twitter where they will be. And uh, yeah, otherwise I will be absconding. <laughs> also, uh, while, while Andy's on holiday, uh, The Goggle Never Sleeps, the sister podcast to The Bugle, uh, the glossy magazine, all of the news, none of the politics, hosted by me, Alice Fraser. That's me. We will now play you out with some lies about our premium level voluntary subscribers. Uh, to join them, go to thebuglepodcast.com and click the donate button to make a one-off or recurring contribution to keep the show free, flourishing and independent. Our lies this week are on the theme of books. Mark Detnon and R.C. Laird, unbeknownst to each other, are both obsessed with writing the first sentences of novels. Between them, they've churned out no fewer than 3,500 opening lines without feeling it necessary to go on to write the second sentence, let alone the whole rest of the book. Amongst Mark's finest novel openings is this one. Keith ran his fingers across his freshly finished pancake, remembering only too clearly what Eric the Grand Prophet of Doom, had said about lemons. R.C. Laird, destined of course to become a novelist due to using two initials rather than the first name, has within the last two minutes I hear penned the following start to a novel. That's not a real tree, were the last words Percival heard before the branches of the Stratulic grasped him by the throat and groin simultaneously. By contrast, David Reed and Simon Hobbs, also entirely unbeknownst to each other, prefer writing the last lines of novels to leave the reader wondering what on earth could have happened before them. Classics from David's oeuvre include And all that was left when the strange purple dust cloud cleared was a single carrot, the echoing whistle of the last train out of town, and two furious goats. Simon, meanwhile, has just completed his 400th final line of an otherwise unwritten novel, entitled The Penultimate Picnic. It reads as follows. Philip knew he would never again see home, never taste the sweetness of Juliana's kiss, never be free from the memories of war. But he had something better, a free washing machine. And finally, by also contrast, Aaron Karat and Olivia Galetti are amongst the almost infinite number of Bugle Volonto subscribers who like to write two lines of dialogue from the exact midpoint of a novel. Aaron's great mid-novel masterpieces include What? How will I fit it all in? asked an astonished Michael. Use your imagination and my shovel, responded Lillian, huffing wildly on her late uncle's still smouldering cigar. Our work is just beginning, she added, mysteriously. And Olivier has delved into the realms of science fiction with his latest middle-of-a-novel exchange, which reads as follows. I suppose I'll learn to live without a head, grumbled the disappointed Snutterbot 2.3, sparks still flickering on the sad wires of its neck. Yes, sorry, SB, apologised Vice Captain Gronsenbard, putting the twelfth and final defunct mechanical eyeball into the airlock. 
I'm starting to think that giant magnet is more trouble than it's worth around here. Here endeth this week's lies. Goodbye. Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss Lime Bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you, you, you must be so excited. Listen now.